You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 21, 22, and 23 together, what Bianca just read uh, for us. As you're turning there, uh, welcome. If you are here and you call Citizens Church your home, it's good to see you. Uh, if you're here and you're new, you are uh, visiting. Uh, my name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're thrilled that you are uh, worshiping with us this morning. If you're watching online, welcome from wherever you are. Um, so before we look at Colossians, let me tell you about next Sunday. Next Sunday, we will start a new sermon series in the book of James. Uh, James is Jesus' younger brother, and he wrote uh, a letter to followers of Jesus, uh, and most of that letter is just filled with the wisdom that he learned uh, from his brother and, uh, and that we need to know and to hear and uh, to abide by in order to faithfully follow Jesus. It's a wonderful book. Um, it's a challenging book, uh, but it's really beautiful, so I'm excited. We're going to start James next Sunday, and we'll be in James until the end of June of this year. So we'll start it in the calendar year and finish it in the calendar year. Uh, this morning, we're in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. It's incredible. It's a stunning passage. I'm excited. Uh, we've been in it before, and we're here again. I'll read it. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Uh, We are seven days into a new year, uh, and I've had a lot of thoughts coming into a new year. Uh, the Lord has me in a place in, in life where I am learning uh, to pay attention to the passing of time. Um, it, you know, part of it was probably because we were in the book of Ecclesiastes for a bit, and that's maybe where it started, and there's other places in the Bible that are going to say rightly about this life that you're living and I'm living, that it's short. Uh, the Bible will talk about the brevity of life, that it's just here and then it's gone. And so, my thoughts have been towards the brevity of life, how quickly time passes, and yet around the turn of the year, it's, it's really turned the volume up on those thoughts. And, and really what that's meant for me is I have, I have thought about things that I want to do and, and things that I want to uh, change and things that I want to pay more attention to, right? And maybe you've had uh, thoughts like that. Uh, in the past few weeks, I've talked with friends about you know, exercising more and eating healthy and never playing pickleball again and all these things. And Carrie and I have talked about our home and just kind of reflected on where our home is at. And we've decided that in in the new year, we want to spend, we want to do more family dinners and we want to be more intentional about family dinner and spiritual conversations around the dinner table. And a lot of that was spurred on by thoughts of the new year. Something, nothing magical happened, but it's just, it's, it's, the date has changed. My son on New Year's Eve, um, he said to the family, I only have five years left in this house. He did the math. It it was about to be 2024, and he graduates in 2029, and he said, I only have five years left. And my daughter, who's five, looked at me and said, wait, you make us leave? (laughs) And I looked at her and I said, not you. You can stay 
forever. But that's sobering, right? Five years left, and I want to hold on to that time, and I want to steward that time well. And I say all that to say this, kind of where I'm at, my thoughts about the new year is I'm, I'm, I'm coming into the new year eager to honor how quickly life moves. And I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to look back with, with regret. And so my plan is to charge into this year, you know, moving towards being as healthy as possible and as present at home as possible and as spiritually disciplined as possible. And, and there's, gosh, there's a lot of good in that. And, and maybe you've thought similar thoughts coming into a new year. And maybe you have resolutions or some sort of plans or something like that. And there's, there's wisdom in that. I have a question, though. I'm asking this of myself and, and you as well. Are these the only kinds of thoughts we should have coming into a new year as Christians? So, if I were to evaluate, most of my thoughts have been about the, about the passing of time, and my response in those thoughts have been, gosh, I've got so much to do. There's so much I want to fix. There's so much I want to change. There's so much I want to put more effort into. If you've thought about the new year, as you've thought about the new year, have you had this thought, oh, I've got a lot of work to do, a lot I want to be better at, you know, self, home, job, life, relationship with God. I've got a lot of, a lot of work to do. And, and here's the thing. Some of it's just objectively true. If I think about for me, I, I, I should read my Bible more. I should eat more vegetables. I should get off my phone. Life is short. And because life is short, I should, I should watch less screens and spend more time in Scripture. I'd be, I'd be better for it. You'd be better for it. But are those the only kinds of thoughts we should have? Are those the most important kinds of thoughts we should have? Because, you know, what happens if we get to this time next year and I'm, and I'm pretty much just the same and you're just the same and, and didn't change a whole lot? Or what if next year, you know, everything we set out to do this year, we, we, we do and we accomplish, and yet what's been revealed in that whole process is there's all this other kind of work needed in all other areas of our life, and that's exhausting. So what I've, what I've found my heart needing, and maybe what yours needs too, is the encouragement that comes from the gospel of Jesus. Because those who belong to Jesus, here's what we believe. We believe that He has done something that has changed time for us. He's done something that changes how we relate to time. He's done something that changes our past, our present, and our future, and how we think about all of life. And as we approach a new year, the most important thing is not actually what we will do. The most important thing about us is what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in us. And that's grace. All of that's grace. That, that's not something we earn. That's something that we receive. If you've thought about the new year, have you thought those thoughts? As you've thought about the new year, have you, have you had this thought, oh, I have so much grace to receive this year. The passage we read in Colossians, it's what's called the propitio of the letter of Colossians. It means it's like the thesis statement. It's Paul's big idea. And it is Paul offering to the Colossians this rich, condensed, compelling summary of the gospel, just what Jesus has done for them, is doing for them, and what he will do for them. And it takes us to two scenes with Jesus, one scene in the past and one in the future. And, and I want to look at, at each of them. And here's my pastoral hope in doing that. My pastoral hope is that our time this morning in this gospel-rich verse would have us think of this year, not first and foremost as a year of fixing or resolving or trying or doing better, but first and foremost as another year of grace from and with our kind Savior. Look again at verse 21. It says this, "...and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind..." 
doing evil deeds. So like a lot of passages in Scripture, it starts with the bad news. This verse tells us what is true about all of us without Jesus. So the Bible is going to teach two fundamental truths about every single human. Uh, If you deny or diminish one, you lose something about what the Bible says is true for every single person. So every single person is both made in the image of God and born with original sin in their heart. So every human is filled with both dignity and depravity. Dignity uh, meaning we're all precious, we are all valuable, we're all sacred. Every single human can say about themselves, of all the things that God created, I am the most marvelous of what He created, and that's true. Also, depravity, that means that, that our, uh, we are all born with sin in our hearts, sin in our souls. The problem with the world is sin in the human heart. And this passage puts words to that. It says uh, to the Christians, it says to Christians, before Jesus, without Jesus, alienated, And that means separated from God. That means far from God. But not just separated from God, but hostile. means that we're not trying to get to God on our own. We're separated from Him, and we oppose Him. And this comes out as evil deeds. And we we could fill in evil deeds with a long list of things, some of which uh, we're all guilty of. And, And evil things that we think. It's evil things that we do. It's evil things that we say. It includes things that almost everyone agrees are wrong like um, hurting others and lying and stealing, and it includes things that a lot of people accept as okay, like being arrogant or worshiping things that are not God. It's both unrighteousness and it's self-righteousness. That's the evil that comes out of us because it first exists in us. This is us without Jesus. Now, it's harsh language. It's, it's bad news. It, it says about the human condition that um, it's worse than we thought. It's not easy, it's not easy to hear. And, and we live in a time where uh, we want to kind of dress up the human problem in, in terms that are easier to accept. So we want the human problem to be a knowledge problem. If we just learn more, everything would be okay. Or we want the human problem to be a, a health problem. If we just got sick less, everything would be okay. Or we want the human problem to be a communication problem. If we could just learn to talk with one another, then everything would be okay. And all that is so much easier to hear than alienated, <laughs> hostile, evil. And so verses like this can offend. Or we, or we hear verses like this and we think, okay, that might be true for other people. There are other evil people in the world, but I'm one of those decent people. And friends, when it, when it comes to what's wrong with us, the goodness of what the Bible is saying is, is when it comes to what's wrong with us, we don't need what sounds good. We need what is true. Uh, after we got married, Carrie and I, this is back in 2008, we uh, got on a plane the day after our wedding uh, to head to our honeymoon, and we flew from Dallas to Atlanta, and then we were flying from Atlanta to Montego Bay, uh, Jamaica. And on that flight from Atlanta to Montego Bay, Carrie got really sick. She was pale, she was nauseous, she was dizzy, and she was just miserable. And so we land, and we go to the resort, and immediately we went to the resort clinic, and she was seen by a nurse there, and they gave her some medicine that didn't help at all. And so for our whole honeymoon, she was sick in bed. And it was this all-inclusive couples resort, and she's sick in the room, and and I stayed right by her side. I'm like, "Um, I'm with you, babe. And she said, hey, go enjoy everything. You know, we paid for this. Go to the beach and have fun. And I was like, no, in sickness and in health, I'm not going to leave you. I'm here with you. And she said, no, really, go. And I said, okay. And so I... (laughs) And so that's what I I had fun. I, I spent the week snorkeling and laying on the beach and hanging out, uh, just me by myself with, with all these other couples, which 
felt a lot like high school. And um, <laughs> we fly home, and uh, because she was sick the whole time, we're, we're actually pretty concerned. And so we go to our doctor, and um, he asks a bunch of questions, does some blood work, and then kind of sits us down. He said, hey, here's what's going on. You have um, seasonal allergies, just really bad seasonal allergies. And so, like, you have pressure in your sinuses, and so the airplane kind of made you freak out a little bit. So what you need to do is you need to uh, take antihistamines and nasal spray, and, and eventually you'll, you'll get better. And we said, great. That sounds really good. That was better than we expected. And that was all really easy. Seasonal allergies, that's fine. And so we, we went with that, took the medicine, bought the stuff, and she didn't get better. Uh, three years later, uh, after we had our first child, things actually got really, really bad. She would get these splitting headaches, and she'd have pain that would shoot down her arm into her limbs. And uh, at, its, at its worst, she would get so dizzy that she couldn't walk. And so we went to another doctor and got a different opinion. And that doctor referred us to a neurosurgeon, and that neurosurgeon scanned her brain, and then he called us into his office, and he sat us down, and he said, it's not seasonal allergies. He said, you have what's called a Chiari malformation, which is... Um, where your brain has run out of room in your skull, and so your brain starts growing out of your skull down into your neck and causes all kinds of problems. And we said, okay, what do we do? And he said, well, you need to have what's called a decompression surgery where they operate on your head to remove parts of your vertebrae. They shave bone in your skull to make more room for your brain in hopes that your brain grows back up into your skull. And that did not sound good. Uh, that was hard to hear. Skull surgery as a 24-year-old brand-new mom with a five-month-old baby. It was far worse than we thought. But we believe that's what the problem was, and that's what she needed. And so that's what we did. A few weeks later, she had surgery. It was awful. Within a few months, she was back to herself, and it worked. She was healed. Think about something with me. Two doctors, two diagnoses. One was easy to hear better than expected, one was hard to hear, worse than we thought, which one helped? Not the one that sounded good, the one that was true, even though it was hard to hear. And that's what we needed. Had we looked at the neurosurgeon and said, hey, I like what the other doctor said better. That was like an easier pill to swallow. I'm going to go with him. She would have gotten worse. When it comes to places like this in the Bible, alienated, hostile, evil out of the evil in your soul, that problem is hard to hear. What it's saying about us, all of us, separated from God, against God, doing evil things because of evil in our hearts. And there are other voices, including our own, that will tell us things that are much easier to hear than that. My problem's not sin in my heart. My problem's the home I grew up in. It's the people around me who need to be more like me. It's my spouse. And if they just changed, everything would be okay. It's my circumstances, things I want that I don't have, things that I have that I don't want. And if that changed, everything would be okay. And while all of that is easier to hear, it's just not true. When we believe our problem is less than sin, we will look for a solution that's less than Jesus. And we will look for a cure that has no power to heal. This is so important. If we don't agree with God here, the rest of this this morning just won't matter because you and I will not receive grace for a condition we don't believe we have. Without Jesus, you are separated from God, against God, engaged in evil things out of the evil in your heart. Without Jesus, I am separated from God, against God. I do evil things out of the evil in my heart. But God does not leave us there. There's bad news, and then there's beautiful news. It says, He has now 
reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The next chapter, Paul expounds on this. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, remember this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. He's talking about the day in history where the Roman Empire crucified Jesus. How does God take someone who is separated from him, hostile towards him, and make them right and whole? He dies for them. He lays down his life. He dies in our place. And what Paul's doing is he's taking us to this scene. He's inviting us to to imagine this. We've talked about this before, but it is a stunning, verse 14 of chapter 2 is a stunning image It talks about a record of debt that's nailed to the cross. When Rome crucified people, they would take the guilty person's name and they would take their charge. They would write it on a piece of wood and then they would nail it to the cross. It was called the Titleist. And then they would nail that person, the guilty person, underneath that charge on the cross. So when Jesus was crucified, they took a piece of wood and they wrote King of the Jews. They nailed it on the cross then they nailed him to the cross. But if someone was being crucified for betraying Rome, right, they would write, take a piece of wood, they would write traitor on it, they would nail it to the cross, and then the traitor would walk up the hill to the place of crucifixion and be nailed to the cross under that crime. Uh, If somebody was crucified for being a murderer, then they would write on that, that on the board, they would write on that cross that they were guilty of murder, and then the guilty person would walk up the hill and be nailed on the cross underneath that charge. Verse 14 takes us to this moment with Jesus and says what was nailed above his head is our record of debt. On earth it reads king of the Jews, but in heaven, in some way in the spiritual realm, that piece of wood was taken, and what was written on it was all of your sin, all of your debt, everything you owe, a lifetime of failure, and it's nailed to the cross. Goodness, just see all the grace. Like, imagine being there. If you can, in your mind, put yourself there at the place of the cross, and the, and the sky is full of darkness, and someone's preparing a cross, and they've got that piece of wood, and they're writing all these things down, and you look over, and it's all your sin. Unmistakably, all your sin, all the things that you've ever done, right? And then it's taken, and it's nailed to this empty cross, and you know you've been exposed. You know it's your sin. It's the hard-to-hear, worse-than-you-thought reality of all the things about you that are not the way you were supposed to be, and that's going to crash down on you. And at any moment, you can be taken and nailed underneath your sin. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, he spares you the nails, and he spares you the cross. Because while it's your charge and while it's your sin, there is one coming up the hill who will take it for you. And you look and you see Jesus coming to the place of crucifixion and he's beaten and he's bloodied and he's weak from his suffering and he's stripped of all of his dignity and he's guilty of nothing and he's pure in everything and he is faithful in life and faithful in death and he walks up to your cross, he sees your charge and he puts a gentle hand on your shoulder and he looks into your eyes and he whispers, I love you. And then he lays down his life so that you can live. No one loves you like Jesus loves you. And so right now, Christian, you're reconciled to God, alive with God every moment of your life right now marked by this grace. Hear it again. We've said it before. What it means is it means you're not your worst moment. You're not your sin. 
You're not your affair. You're not your lies. You're not your worry. You're not your fear. You're not your lust. You're not your divorce. You're not your envy. You're not your depression. You're not your self-harm. You're not your self-hatred. You're not your porn addiction. You're not your disorder. You're not what's been done to you. You're not what you have. You're not what you've lost. You're not your pride. You're not your self-righteousness. You're not your unrighteousness. You are one who is covered in Christ's righteousness because Everything you owed hung above his head. He dies so that you can live. You are loved. You're lo- he loves you. He loves you. N- not the version of you that you think is lovable. Not the version that will do better this year. The unadorned, unfiltered, broken person that you try to hide from others is the very same person who is right now loved by God in Christ because that's your worst Every sin, every wrong, everything dark and evil hung over the head of your Savior so that you are not what you need to do. You're not the worst thing you've ever done. You're not what you failed to do. You are what He has done for you. What grace. Around these realities, Tim Keller says this, we are far worse than we want to believe and far more loved than we dare to dream. God has lavished His grace on you. You're no longer alienated from God. Your past is covered in His grace. He's lavished His grace on, his, on your right now, in your present. You are loved by God in Christ. And then watch this. It doesn't stop there. There's grace waiting for you in your future. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. In Ephesians, Paul says it like this. Christ loved the church. That's you, Christian. That's me. And gave Himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul took us to the cross, as seen in the past. Now he takes us to some scene in the future. When we stand before God, we are with Jesus, we are before the presence of God, and it says what happens there is Jesus presents us, his church, and in that, in that moment, he has made true about us what he speaks as true about us, holy, blameless, above reproach. Stay with me. Um, everyone I know knows that something needs to change. Everyone I know. Th- this world, this life, it's not as it, as it should be. I don't know of anyone that's looking around right now, watching the news, seeing the way that people engage online, perusing through Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I don't know of anyone who looks at all that and goes, yeah, this is, this is pretty good. We're doing, we're doing great. Everyone loves each other. Nobody disagrees on anything. Everyone I know knows that something needs to change. Here's what happens. Um, for Christians, there's a maturing that takes place in all of that, though, especially on this side of our salvation. There's a depth that grows. So most people will start with something like this. Things need to change. And that's true. Things need to change. Governments need to change, injustice needs to change, poverty needs to change. There's a lot of things that need to change. But if we only stay there, we grow disconnected and discouraged because a lot of what needs to change is outside of our control. And so there's a further place to go than that. And that further place is this, people need to change. And it's true. The people around you need to change. The people around me need to change. There are things they they do that they shouldn't do. There's things they shouldn't do that they do. And, and, and we can't, especially those in close proximity to us, we just can't help but see all the things in their life that need to change, their faults, their sin. 
But if we only stay there, we grow proud and critical. We, we keep these long lists of, of all the things that we don't like about the people around us or the people not like us, and we start to care more about sin in their life than sin in our own life. And so there's something further than that. There's things need to change, people need to change, and then there's I need to change. And it's true. Uh, even as a Christian, I'm just not yet who I'm supposed to be. I'm loved, I'm forgiven, but I need to change. There are so many parts of my life that don't look like Jesus. I, if I just, I can be irritable, I can lack compassion, uh, I am more fool than I am sage, I am more anxious than I am at peace, I'm more insecure than I am confident, I am more harsh than I am gentle. I need to change. And you could make your own list, but if we only stay there, we grow defeated and exhausted. I need to change just becomes this accusation of all the things that are wrong with me, all the things that I'm not. And so there's something further than that. And it's this, Jesus is changing me. Jesus is changing me. Things need to change. Yes, people need to change. Yes, I need to change. But the furthest place, the deepest place is Jesus is changing me. He is changing you. He's promised to do it. He's active in your life, changing you right now by his grace. And this verse takes us to a day when that is fully and forever completed. Jesus makes everything right in all of the world, and wholly and completely, he will make you who you were always meant to be. And these are the words that God's word puts to it. One day with him, you will be declared holy and blameless without blemish. Holy, it means set apart. Your, your very character mirroring the character of God. Uh, blameless, it means there's no imperfections, there's no blemishes, nothing wrong with you at all. Oh, I love this. Above reproach, it means there's no accusation that can stand against you. None. No one, no voice can accuse you of anything wrong. It means this, on that day, there are no voices of shame. You know what that sounds like. You know the the voice of shame. There's an external voice that is against you, critical of you. You can never seem to please that voice. There's an internal voice, and maybe it's the louder one, and it says the worst things about you. It's all criticism. It's no compassion. It's the voice that just a few moments ago when I was talking about you not being your worst moment and the beauty of the cross and the beauty of forgiveness and the beauty of God's love, it's the voice that says, none of that's true for you. You're the exception. Everyone else in the room can receive grace except for you. And there's a day coming when that voice is silenced. It's a scene in the future. It's a future day before God where Jesus says about you, what's, here's what's most true about you. You're holy and you're blameless and you're above reproach. And on that day, no one else gets to speak. And whatever accusation assaults you now, it just has no place there. The shame goes silent. Every accusation against you runs out of breath in the presence of Jesus who gets the last word. Can you see it? Oh, just, just imagine it. It's, it's you and Jesus, and, and some voice points a finger and says, oh, this was the guy who was anxious his whole life. Never trusted God like he should. He's faithless. And Jesus interrupts and says, holy, blameless, above reproach. He's mine. And Jesus gets the last word. Uh, you're there, and, and shame says, oh, this was the mom who didn't spend enough time discipling her kids never could get it together enough to offer what they needed. She failed, and Jesus interrupts and says, holy, blameless, above reproach, she's mine, and he gets the last word. 
Oh, this one struggled with that disgusting sin their whole life, their whole life, and kept failing and had to confess the same embarrassing thing over and over again. He's a fraud. She's a fraud. And Jesus interrupts, holy, blameless, above reproach. He's mine. She's mine. And Jesus gets the last word. Oh, this one never got married. They stayed single their whole life. No one loved them enough to love them in marriage. They must be unlovable. And Jesus interrupts, holy, blameless, above reproach. He's mine. She's mine. And Jesus gets the last word. Oh, this one was the preacher who was different on stage than he was at home. Put together in front of a crowd much messier when fewer people were around. He's a hypocrite. And Jesus interrupts, holy, blameless above reproach. He's mine. And Jesus gets the last word and on and on. You know, they could never make relationships work. Their adult children don't follow the Lord. It's all their fault. They never had enough faith. They could never shake their doubts. They never knew enough. They were not grateful enough. They didn't have enough joy. And on that day, Jesus says to all of that, be quiet, be quiet. Christian, whoever you are and however it sounds, there is a day coming where all accusations against you run out of breath. And Jesus is the only one who gets to talk. And what he says about you is the truest thing about you. He looks right at you and says, holy and blameless and above reproach because of what he has done for you, what he is doing with you, and what he will complete in you. He will do it. God is for you. He will change you, and he will complete the good work that he started in you. So what's left for us to do? In response to all of that grace, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, remain. Christian, remain. Be faithful. Don't move past this. Don't try to get beyond it. Don't try to work yourself out of it. Don't shift from this hope. Do you know what's better than your resolve? God's promise. God's promise. So hold loosely to your confidence in you and all that you will do and hold tight to Jesus and all that he is doing. I don't know what all this year holds for you, but Christian is someone whose past is covered by grace, someone whose future is secure in grace, someone every moment of your present is held together by the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know this, there is so much grace for you to receive this year. Father, we love you. Oh, it's true. It's the kind of truth that is unthreatened by our doubt. It's the kind of truth that is unthreatened by our cynicism. It's the kind of truth unthreatened by our shame. Oh, stronger than sin is the grace of our Lord. Stronger than death is the resurrection of our King. Stronger than our fear of the future is the certainty of hope. And so we, we love you. And Lord, I, I pray in this room right now that, that whatever pieces of your word are most needed in the hearts of my brothers and sisters, would they fall like an anchor, God, in their soul? And for the person, God, who, who needs to pray a prayer of faith, even if it's a, a prayer of weak faith that says, I'm not my worst moment, that prayer of weak faith is heard by a strong Savior. And if there's a prayer that needs to be prayed and it's a prayer of weak faith that says the shame is wrong, 
Jesus gets the last word. That weak prayer is heard by a strong God. And so we thank you and we love you. Would you move among us and help us? I just don't know what we would do without you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.